and there's probably only me and my son and a couple of other people that actually use them. It's quite a unique, it's handmade. Oh. You can hold it if you like. <laughs> uh, yes, piece I meet Nick Carter at his home in Jervis Bay on the south coast of New South Wales. It's a beach house on a leafy street. It's gone dusk, so lorikeets are chatting in the gum trees. With a knife, you've got to use that action. You've got to flip it over and then grab it. But with one of these, you just stick it in and it brings it straight back to you. Nick's showing me the hook he uses to pick up abalone while diving in the cool waters of saltwater country. But it has a multiple use. I use it for fishing, um, catching bait. Um. Scratching your back. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I've got that. <laughs> Nick is a Ewan man, one of the South Coast people who have been fishing these waters for millennia. Over the past decade, Nick has been charged numerous times for fisheries offences, racking up tens of thousands of dollars worth of fines. In a recent case, he was charged with hindering fisheries in the execution of their duties. I had uh, eight abalone, I had one undersize, and I threw that back in the water in front of them, and they seen that as hindering their, as their duties, and they said I threatened them, which I thought was, a, <coughs> as far as I was concerned, it was self-defence, because they grabbed me first. And yeah, and that ended up being a ten thousand, only a twelve thousand dollar fine. Hi, I'm Lara Corrigan. Welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places, and perspectives from beyond the big cities. The south coast of New South Wales is famed for its sapphire waters, wild beaches, and pristine lagoons. Its internationally acclaimed seafood, its oysters, lobsters, and abalone. Fishing has been carried out on this coastline for millennia. There's evidence of middens here dating back 20,000 years. The South Coast Aboriginal people have a native title claim pending for this stretch of coast, from south of Botany Bay to Eden, near the Victorian border. It's a few years off, but it looks likely that they'll get it. Fishing is central to the South Coast people, the clans of the Ewan Nation. But over three decades, Aboriginal fishers have been prosecuted under legislation designed to maintain the sustainability of fisheries, but it's not their law. And there's evidence that they're being punished disproportionately. The people I spoke to said they feel harassed and persecuted. I'm only allowed to go there and swim, you know, on the beach, on the sand, but I can't hunt and gather. But it's no use of me going and taking this boy because I can't show him. I can't catch a lobster and put it in a rock pool for him to play with and... A few hours from Nick's place, up the coast near Wollongong, while Bunjaman John Carriage lets me into his home. His two-year-old son James plays in the garden in front of us with Lola, the bulldog. John is forbidden from fishing or ocean harvesting for two years. He can't carry any diving equipment on him or in his car, not even for his kids. Well, he has a pair of goggles. He has a snorkel, he has a wetsuit, he has little flippers. But I'm not allowed to hold diving gear in my car. I use a flathead screwdriver so I can't have a toolbox in my car. Any goggles, any snorkels, anything what we use to catch mutton fish, I'm not allowed to have in the car. 
and um he likes to take his little goggles to the beach and they would not believe that they were my two-year-old son's goggles. They would drag me in the court, he's breached, he's got to go to jail, he's got to, you know. John was fined $35,000 and given a two-year suspended jail sentence with 12 months probation after being apprehended with two bags of abalone weighing under 10 kilos. He's appealing against the conviction. These prosecutions are happening during a kind of legal grey area. The Native Title Act protects the rights of Aboriginal peoples of the South Coast to practice cultural fishing at a Commonwealth level. But this protection hasn't been integrated into state law. Nick Carter says fear of prosecution has affected the culture on the coast. It's changed the way us crews are on the coast. We're sort of um, more secretive about uh, when we go and dive and where we go and dive in mainly because of the fear of um, being prosecuted. That's one of my, like, even our general language along the coast now is, um, I could be walking down the street and I could see one of the brothers or sisters over there. I can just go like that, head, and that means, how's the water? And they'll go, you know, flat or choppy, and it's no good or what's up. And all that's changed. Um, so, are you afraid to go fishing now? Or? No, I've been fishing. I went, actually, uh, I've got. <clears throat> I'm at that stage now. If I have an encounter with fisheries, I'll make sure I go diving the next day or fishing the next day, just so that I don't have that fear of not practicing my culture again. It um, so hasn't stopped. I live in the past house, guys. I'm a human man. And uh, I'm a 75-year-old diver. I still dive today. Uh, they fed me mob, fed the grannies back in the early 50s. Uh, I started uh, diving when they shot me in the water. I said, you've got to swim. If you don't swim, you'll go and feed yourself. So uh, from then on, I've been in the water all my life. And I love it. Ewan Elder, great-grandfather and 75-year-old diver Kevin Mason made headlines after a video of his interaction with fisheries officers from 2018 was leaked to the ABC. Hi, Kevin, stop! Fisheries, stop! Stop, Kevin, I want to check those fish! Kevin, stop there! Stop! Not, not silly at all. Stop. You know the rules here. I'm an anti-fertile element. Okay, come and talk to me. No, I'm talking to you right now. Yeah, come on. Come on, don't touch my Kevin. food. Kevin! Don't touch my food, please. Kevin. Don't touch my food. Please. Don't touch I'm my food. I'm asking nicely. Please, Kevin. Come with me. Hey, come on. Don't get nasty with me. Please. I meet Kevin at a headland near Kayanga Beach. It's a cloudy but hot day. A storm threatens on the horizon. It's windy. I'm fishing with my mob, with my family, my grannies and it. I teach them. My tradition, what I've been taught, and uh, um, like the uh, like the seafood, that's our diet, main diet, sort of thing, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, and everything to do with the ocean. It, it uh, used to be ours one time ago, back in the early 50s, would be no problem until it started in the 70s and 80s, or the 60s really, when they started brought these laws out and fishing laws and saying you can't do this and you can't do that, you're taking too many of this, you're taking too many of that. And Kevin uh, has been fishing and diving along the coast for the better part of a century. 
I'm just trying to live, you know. As a kid, his family moved around a lot. When he was little, he didn't understand why, but later he learned they were on the run so that he and the other children couldn't be taken away. And we were living at Wallaga Lake when it happened down there, and my grandmother said, don't you, if you just call you black kid, just run down, get down the bush down the Mosquito Bay. So we was all hanging on the trees, about 15 or 20 of us, and these big cars come in on the mission and just grab kids randomly, girls and boys. I've never seen them again. And some of them's my people, and my bloodline. Kevin feels like he's still being hunted down today. He has been prosecuted three times in five years, with two previous prosecutions withdrawn. He gets picked up for offences he's only just had thrown out. I was out and I wasn't even diving, because uh, we read the weather and when the weather's blowing, uh, you get a southerly blowing or southeaster blowing for so long, the sand all builds up and puts all the avalanches into shore sort of thing and pushes them virtually right out of the water. And uh, I was just walking around getting avalanches this day and I said, oh, beauty, I said, I don't need to get in a dive, have a dive. And uh, got out of the water and this fishery jumped out off the rock and run around the corner. Stop fishing, I was right there, I was up to the place. Stop fishing, so I, I was scared the dollars out of me. I didn't know who it was. And I was Stop fishery, don't you move. And I'd so run out in the water. And uh, up to here, and the fishery jumped in the water and grabbed me while I was It was uh, hilarious, you know. There are cultural bag limits for Aboriginal people which allow them to fish more than non-Indigenous recreational fishes. Cultural fishers can also request permits to collect even more for special events. But these bag limits were created as an interim until the Fisheries Act Amendment Protecting Cultural Fishing, Section 21AA, was written into law. It's been almost 12 years since 21AA was approved. It still hasn't been enacted. More on that later. That cultural bag limit for abalone, the shellfish at the centre of most discord, is 10. Abalone, or muddenfish, is a high-value species worth up to $170 per kilo. Kevin, like many other cultural fishes I spoke to on the south coast, doesn't recognise this limit. They say it's not enough, that it's arbitrary, that government and industry aren't placed to tell them how much they should take. My mob is... I've got... 20 in my mob, and not only that, I've got some holdies and they're down at Bermagui, they live in Nara, they live in Bega, uh, they live in Eden, and they're the people that can't get in the water. I'm the only one who's still doing it. Drop them off a feed, when I go down to Eden, have a dive down to Eden, I get them a feed of mussels, then get them a feed of oysters, and get them a feed of abalone, and, and uh, I put the nets in now, because I've got to freelance them with the net now, sort of thing. And, uh, now I just feed all the community. Pretty good. I mean, I could eat half a dozen abalone eh, by the time I clean them up and, you know, but it's, it's their bag limit, it's not ours, you know. And, you know, they sold it off, we've exceeded the bag limit and make out that we're massive big criminals and organised crime, and, but they can go and take 150 tonne a year. You know, but years ago it was 350 tonne, now it's, and then it went down and down and down, and it's still, they still take 100 tonne today. This is Wally Stewart. We meet in Naruma on the edge of the Turquoise Lagoon, across the water from where he grew up. I'm a well bunja man from the far south coast, and um, I'm an applicant for the South Coast Native Title Claim, and I'm a representative for the New South Wales Aboriginal Fishing Rights Group. 
Wally started the New South Wales Aboriginal Fishing Rights Group to organise the South Coast people's defence of cultural fishing. You know, we used to teach our kids when we used to go diving, we'd put them on our back. They'd just have a pair of goggles and we'd be out there diving. Then when we'd dive down, they'd be holding their breath with us. And then if we stayed down too long, they'd be kicking us and punching us. And then we'd come back up, you know. And, but that's how we taught them to dive. And, you know, we don't want to lose, we don't want to ever lose that. You know, we showed them the signs, you know. We showed them when the sand moved and, and um, you know, the sand will come along and next minute all the reef will disappear but the abalone and all the conks will lay in there and they know when to, you know, the, the mullet run and they're fat and... There's an expectation that you share what you catch. Many families might rely on just a few good fishers in a community. Losing those providers can lead to social breakdown. It's why men like Kevin keep getting back in the water. Wally says the way fisheries officers are persecuting his mob amounts to harassment. You know, we get to the court and and um, just before the you know the 11th hour, they'd throw the case out, you know, because they knew that they weren't going to win it, but they wasted a lot of taxpayers' money, you know, to, you know using the fisheries to... They've got a SWAT team down, an abalone SWAT team down here, and they run around chasing blackfellas around, you know, see if they're in the water, and then they prosecute them, and then we try to tell them that, you know, these guys, we're um, traditional owners, and we've even got a card, and we show them, and um, they just choose to ignore it, and it's a pattern down here where the, where the police and the fisheries just, um, you know, keep on, keep on doing it, so. I mean, in an area just a couple of hours' drive from Sydney, you've got People living in a virtual state of siege, I mean, they're being monitored, they're being followed, they're being harassed by state authorities. This is Paul Cleary, policy and advocacy lead for Oxfam's First Peoples Program. Oxfam collected crime data on fisheries offences since 2009. What the numbers show is that Aboriginal people are overrepresented when it comes to jail terms. But what's also really interesting is that that overrepresentation increases with the severity of the punishment. So, for example, um, Aboriginal people make up 21% of those who are given a bond but no conviction. Um, if it's a bond with supervision, they go up to 51%. If it's a community service order, they make up 65%. And then at the top of the tree, you've got imprisonment, which is 80%. So you can see it just steps up as, as I say, the punishment becomes more severe. So that's a pretty extreme case of injustice and also bias in the legal system and in the, in the policing and enforcement of those laws. Paul says the data also shows a pattern of cultural fishers being charged but then having their cases dropped. There's been a big increase just in the last 18 months, actually, there's been 70 Aboriginal people who have been charged with these offences, but then it's resulted in no outcome. And that's some um, indicating to me that this is sort of like a form of harassment that's going on here, that governments are, are wanting to deter Aboriginal people from carrying out these traditional activities. And uh, what's interesting with this, these activities that, that you don't see the same pattern with non-Indigenous people. So there are some uh, lawyers who have been working on this uh, issue for quite a while and they characterise this as a form of human rights abuse. It's the justice system that's really not intent on following through but is just trying to harass and intimidate people. The Department of Primary Industries told Voice of Real Australia that it's a misconception that Aboriginal people are being targeted for fisheries offences. 
DPI Fisheries says it's contributed significantly to supporting, protecting and fostering cultural fishing activity across the state. And then it manages fisheries resources on behalf of the whole community to ensure that fish stocks are sustainable and shared equitably between all fishing sectors, including cultural, commercial and recreational fishers. The Fisheries Management Act says that the Fisheries Management Act doesn't affect the native title rights, but yet that Fisheries Management Act is being used to prosecute Aboriginal people for fishing on the South Coast. And there is some likelihood that native title will be found to exist on the New South Wales South Coast, which will include fishing rights. There will be questions then about um, the compensation that's payable to all of those Aboriginal people who were prosecuted for doing precisely what they're entitled to do. This is lawyer Tony McAvoy. I'm a barrister. I'm senior counsel. My people are the Wurri people from central Queensland, west of Rockhampton, but I practice from chambers in Sydney. Tony has represented people of the South Coast against fisheries charges and advocated for cultural fishing rights. I can't talk about the matters that are currently before the court, but in relation to the previous prosecutions, it seemed to me that the people that I was representing were exercising their native title rights. And my view about that right to fish is not that it's simply the right to go into the water and take the fish, but it's the right to do it free from harassment and free from a search and, uh, and the fear of seizure of your catch and this fear of confiscation of your gear. Cultural fishers assert their right to fish under the Commonwealth Native Title Act, which allows native title holders to be exempt from laws that restrict fishing and other cultural activities. As mentioned, the South Coast People's Native Title Claim, filed in 2017, which includes three nautical miles off the coast, is being determined. I and a number of other lawyers who have been engaged in defending these fisheries prosecutions have suggested to the government that it stop the prosecutions until the native title is determined. That way, limiting the liability of the state for compensation, reducing or removing the effect on people's lives and livelihoods. It seems to me outrageous that Aboriginal people on the south coast of New South Wales run the risk of being sent to jail for exercising their inherent rights. My, my two sons... They were taught from an early age from me, um, their uncles and their aunties about fishing because we've got a cultural obligation to pass down our culture into um, our families. So they were taught at a very young age and as a result of that they went out and fished. Over time they've been caught by fisheries and um, been presented to the court and they've amassed fines of up to $10,000 and $12,000 each. I meet Danny Chapman on the breakwater at Batemans Bay. Fishing boats head out to sea on the bay where, Danny tells me, he used to push out a tin canoe. Danny works for the South Coast Aboriginal Land Council. I'm a saltwater man from the Walbunja clan from the Yuan Nation. Danny says the impact of a fisheries offence on individuals in the community is ongoing. Once a court find you guilty about that, it's a crime. There's no misdemeanour, and it gets stapled to your forehead everywhere you go, and it, you just can't get a job. You can't buy a car, 
you can't have a registration, you can't get a licence. So it's really affected my family and, um, you know, I don't want to be selfish about this. Um, all of our families have been affected in a similar way. John Carriage says fishing trips were an escape for him, a time to unwind, that his mental health has suffered since facing court. John seemed to me particularly affected by the magistrate's accusation that he was harming his country. I'm going through a lot of stress now, depression, anxiety, and just what these laws have done. I've walked into that court and sat there, and the way they've um, put these allegations, accusations on me, they've made out I'm this bad person, I'm taking everything from the ocean. And the judge actually said that I'm destroying the marine environment. One person, just myself, what I am doing is destroying... I think that he should have said that I'm interrupting their economy. So the Australian government, they don't care about the environment, they don't care about our land, our water. They destroy, they clear all our land, they take all the minerals out of the ground and whatever, whatever's worth a lot of money to them, they just take and destroy and... There's also a concern on the coast that the traditions and culture that go along with fishing will be severed if young people avoid the water due to fear of prosecution. Nick Carter says fishing is what created community along a 450-kilometre coastline. Going down the coast to Naruma and diving with Wally, for example, that was our first real connection as two young Koori men, was going diving. That was a common interest, and that's what we did when we were younger. We, we dived together. And that's the sort of stuff that the young fellas are going to miss out on because we've been pushed back into this with our backs against the wall, so, so to speak. Our younger fellas ain't going to have that sort of connection with different people down the coast or up the coast. and that. They're going to miss out on that. Although, Wally Stewart says, his culture won't be lost that easily. Um, and this is the beauty about our, my mob. They were stubborn mob and it's in, the, in them to keep going back. And, um, and if they didn't, and we let you know, this government in New South Wales you know, keep intimidating us and prosecuting us, and we would have stopped doing that, that could have severed our um, native title, you know, our native title rights. And, you know, because native title's about descent, you know, and that's your family and connection. And I suppose uh, um, you know, I've got to take my hat off to all our mob and, you know, for being resilient to, you know, stuff you. Yeah, I'm going out to get a feed and, and that was just who they are and, you know, kept that connection going. When I asked people why they thought fisheries officers would be targeting them, they said it was because of pressure from the industry. But the Abalone Association of New South Wales, the industry body that represents commercial abalone divers, says it supports cultural fishing. I'll start by saying that we certainly don't put pressure on the government to crack down on cultural fishing. We've supported cultural fishing um, for a long time. We've totally supported it. This is John Smythe, the Secretary of the Association. He's been a commercial abalone diver on the South Coast for 40 years. But what we don't support is the large-scale taking of abalone by anybody um, that's not within that regulated system and because it's, it threatens the stability of the resource. 
and we have seen areas that have been, you know, really affected by illegal take for two reasons. One, that it's usually quite big in quantity and two, they're usually quite small in the number of abalone they take because they, they're not going to abide by or size limits and things like this. And once again, I'm not talking about averages. I'm just talking about anybody that fishes illegally for selling onto the black market. There are around 20 commercial abalone divers on the south coast licensed to collect the lucrative shellfish within a quota of 100 tonnes per year. None of the current divers identify as Aboriginal. Commercial divers, John Smythe tells me, want cultural fishing. They just want it to be regulated, just like commercial and recreational fishing in terms of bag limits and size guides. The association helped determine that cultural bag limit of 10 abalones. But, John Smythe says, people have used cultural fishing as a front for poaching. Once it starts going above that, they've been just pushing that envelope, you know, just yeah, using it as a front, saying they're cultural fishing. And we know it goes up in the illegal market. And finding in the Liverpool court last week, a, um, a South Coast man was found guilty of selling abalone into a Chinese restaurant in the west of Sydney somewhere. And it was like over a couple of thousand. And um, he hasn't been um, sentenced yet, but it's been a long time coming and he's prosecuted for selling that abalone and being involved in commercial economy. He's talking about Keith Nye, who was found guilty of trafficking seafood in November. While cultural fishing, by definition in New South Wales, is non-commercial, Wally Stewart says that trading or selling seafood has been part of South Coast culture for some time. I probably sold um, lobsters in every, in every motel and restaurant in this town in Naruma. You know, right up until the um, late 70s. Obviously, I used to even walk in the top pub, stand there with a box of lobsters on a Friday night at the pub and sell them to everybody in the pub. You know, and that was only in the late 70s, you know. And I exchanged them lobsters for money. You know, and that was money to go home to feed my family. In the early days, there was only you know, um, seasonal work, saw milling and fishing. Well, everybody knew how to fish. As far as we're concerned, um, it is our commercial right. Bartering and trading for money is barter and trading. Danny Chapman says fishing has historically provided an opportunity for Aboriginal people to make a living. You know, most of the Aboriginal people around this place, we're not builders, we're not carpenters, but we're fishermen. It's the way we were brought up, it's the way we were taught. It's the way we survived. And, you know, there's plenty of room for everyone, you know, if government policies change and the opportunities that we have to exploit our natural resources because we say that we own now the resources, our native title claim asserts that for us. So if we can um, exploit that, we can certainly make a living and change the lives of many Aboriginal people down here on the south coast for the better. You know, it gives them an economic opportunity. It's been argued in court that selling seafood was an important part of Aboriginal culture after colonisation, a way to survive dispossession. In the Northern Territory, the Torres Strait Islander people are involved in fisheries management. Selling the catches is protected by law to a certain scale. That said, Wally tells me cultural fishing rights 
isn't about being brought into the white fella system. We're past that stage now. You know, we had the opportunity to do that, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And all they want to do now is just, um, just drag us under their industry, you know, and so they can control us. But we don't need to. You know, I'm an applicant for the South Coast Native Title Claim and the evidence that's coming out that we have to show, it shows that um, we've probably got the strongest claim in Australia when it comes to the water. So well, why should we give away our rights, you know, to come under their fishing industry? You know, it's, isn't it about time that they come and talk to us and then we'll talk about fishing industry to them? I don't want their ab licence anymore. What for? You know, why? They've done the damage anyway. All we want to do is fix it up. I believe that they, they should piss all the abalone industry off, personally. It seems to me there are two systems of law operating on the South Coast. The law of the New South Wales government that manages the fisheries and the old law, the culture that's been passed down to the Aboriginal clans of the Ewan Nation. That old law has been recognised at a Commonwealth level and Section 21AA was meant to protect it at a state level. When John Carriage faced court, his defence was native title. But he says the prosecution were fighting a different fight. So I was actually there fighting a native case, but they just keep coming back with their law. But he hasn't got a licence, he hasn't, you know, he hasn't... But I've went in the court for them to prove to me that I'm not Aboriginal and I shouldn't be allowed to do it. I don't think they understood that I'm fighting against their laws. I don't think... Judge Dick and these prosecutors understand what I'm actually doing. They need the proof that my ancestors never dove and they need the proof that we didn't barter, swap and trade our natural resources on the land and water with the convicts when they come over. But they haven't proved none of that. All they do is go on today's law, what their ancestors have made up. Tony McAvoy has seen that disconnect in his cases. I'm concerned that there is a misunderstanding in the Department of Primary Industries and the uh, police prosecutions about what the native title defence is that exists under the Native Title Act and that in order to exercise their native title rights, the Aboriginal people on the South Coast uh, have to bear the full burden of demonstrating to the police each time, each time the existence of the right and how they were exercising it. And it's a total mismatch in terms of the resources available to the state as opposed to Aboriginal people on the South Coast to go through this process of proof every time. DPI Fisheries says it has processes in place to honour native title rights where they apply and that officers are trained to understand the nuances between native title and cultural fishing. But Wally Stewart says that hasn't been his experience. They said they've had cultural awareness training. Well, I was at their cultural awareness training in Naruma and um, you know, went along and done them a welcome to country and sat in on their training. And, and you know, they're all, all nice fellas and, you know, and just ordinary people doing a job. And, and, and we, were, we were talking to the appliance officers and telling them... Um, do you, do you know about um, Section 211, you know, um, the Native Title Act? And they go, no, what are you talking about? And we said, well, you know, you're supposed to be appliance officer, aren't you? And, you know, it's in your Fisheries Management Act. It's in there under Section 287, like I'm a black fella, telling them about their act, that they they work. And they go, no. And I said, well, you know, we, we're exempted from the Fisheries and the Marine Parks Management Act. How come you don't know that? And I said, go and ask your supervisor. So they had this baldy-headed fellow, you know, their supervisor in the room and, you know, and he's just, and he get, they go over and talk to it, and they're really excited to 
you know, talk to us about it, and he just waves his hand and goes, no, nah, don't worry about that, you know. So, you know, it's not been passed down the line. In recent days, a motion by the opposition to enact 21AA, the Cultural Fishing Defence for Fisheries Offences, was passed unanimously, putting some pressure on the government to write it into law finally. But Tony McAvoy points out that the government already had the power to do that and has had that power for years. Legislation that was passed by the parliament in 2009 has not being commenced due to failures by the administration or the executive government to enable its commencement. That is um, properly described as a, a thwarting of parliamentary will and it's a absolute blight on this government and previous governments that they haven't acted to ensure that this these provisions have been commenced, especially when the failure to commence those provisions is likely to have resulted in in Aboriginal people going to jail when there was no need to. Alongside the motion, an inquiry has also been announced into why Section 21AA has sat on the unpublished list for over a decade. The inquiry is chaired by the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party's Mick Banaziak. DPI Fisheries says the delay is in part due to the intention to enact the amendment alongside catch limits, blaming Aboriginal consultation groups for rejecting those limits. I guess we'll wait for the result of the inquiry. What's important to Wally Stewart, he tells me, is taking part in caring for saltwater country. Norama means Norama. Norama means beautiful, you know, and look where we live and you can look you know, anywhere along this coastline. We've got a beautiful coastline and it's beautiful. And that's what it means. But you put your head under the water and it's, you know, it's shameful you know, compared to when we were growing up and what it was really like. And we want to restore that balance. You know? And if that has to you know, piss these you know, people off you know, and drop that industry back or you know, work together on you know, sustainable and maybe look at, um, you know, ranching of abalone and, you know, different methods and start restoring the balance back in our water. We'll get this country back to where it was. You know, that's all we, we're not asking for much. I don't think we are. I'm asking for something that we were to be part of, you know, managing our waters and, and um, looking after country again. That's all we do. That's all we want to do. Here's Danny Chapman again. You know, and it really gives me the shits um, with government where they cherry pick our culture. You know, they're happy for us to um, chuck a dance on here and there and give a welcome to country, but they're not happy for us to have our cultural fishing rights. So, you know, they're cherry-picking and taking what they like and rejecting what they don't. Now, I say that is, you know, that I'm really angry about that because if they don't accept us who we are, then... um, And and they probably don't. And their answer to that is, um, we're going to prosecute you. And that's why I feel I'm, you know, really, really angry about it. At Kayanga Beach, despite everything, Kevin Mason is itching to get in the water. And I'm just waiting for the weather to fire up and warms up the ocean and, and I'll jump in again. They're not going to stop me. Never. Kevin Mason there, he says he'll keep practising his culture despite multiple prosecutions for fishing. 
He was speaking to producer Lara Corrigan. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voiceofrealaustralia. You can follow me on Twitter at tommelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in Canberra on Nunawal and Nambri land. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Our editor is Emily Sweet. Thanks this week go to Joel Erickson and Sit Dittavong. This is an ACM podcast. Mm-hmm.